All right, folks, we are back in the studios for another edition of the Week in Review. And by the way, I got to thank everybody. Last week's edition of the Week in Review, the most popular week in review ever. Out of nowhere, who saw it coming? But thank you. And props also to Dylan Nolan, our director of special projects, for the work he's been doing on this show since way back in November of 2021. It's almost like we're getting good at this, Dylan. I don't know. It's almost like we know what the hell we're doing here or something. But anyway, another big episode coming up this week. We've got a big update on the Long Island serial killer, his connections to South Carolina. Jen Wood and Callie Lyons, our newest researcher, are going to do a deep dive into that story and some of the connections that they've been able to undercover linking that Empire State uh, saga to the Palmetto State. We're going to find out exactly how those connections are working. We've also got an update on the Murdoch civil case. A settlement has been reached in the highest-profile civil case tied to the Murdoch saga. I'm going to go through that, walk you through it, and have a conversation about what you really need to be focused on as that case draws to a close. Last, and certainly not least, I sat down with a woman named Janet Smoke, whose son died of a fentanyl overdose, an accidental fentanyl overdose. That is an interview you will not want to miss. We've got an excerpt from it coming up later in the show. All that and more heading your way on The Week in Review. This past week, the nation was shocked by the arrest of 59-year-old Rex Huerman. This New York architect was arrested in Midtown Manhattan on July 13. He has been charged with three murders tied to the Long Island serial killer case, which had baffled authorities in New York State for the better part of the last decade and a half. But the Huerman saga isn't confined to the Empire State. Its tentacles reach all the way down here to South Carolina, specifically Chester County, which is where Huerman's brother has been living for many years and where Huerman himself owns multiple properties. In an effort to dig into these connections and to see if there are potential links between Huerman and cases here in South Carolina, our research director, Jen Wood, and the newest addition to our team, Callie Lyons, got together to talk about what they've been able to uncover in this story. Here's that segment. So I am here with Callie Lyons, Fitz News new researcher. Um, we're so excited to have her on the team. And Callie and I did a really interesting story together this week about the accused Long Island serial killer Rex Hewerman. I think I got that right. Um, in his ties to South Carolina, which we think might be a little uh, more more uh, extensive than people originally thought. Well, yes, last week when a suspect was taken into custody as the Long Island serial killer, we started to get tips pretty much right away from people from South Carolina who were curious about his Chester County connection and what there might be to that. So, of course, we started to look into it and you hope you don't find anything, right? <laughs> but Fingers crossed, but it is, did. Yeah, it is South Carolina, so... So he, um, he, when we were digging into the property records, we discovered that, that Rex Hurman, who is the now accused Long Island serial killer, who they have been hunting for uh, over a decade, um, has four parcels of land in Chester, South Carolina. And those lands were purchased near his brother, Craig Hurman. Um, and there, they were, I'm going to have Dylan, um, you know, while we're talking, he's going to put up images of these properties, but they're really remote and kind of like in the middle of nowhere on, uh, you know, small bodies of water, which I thought was interesting. 
So, you know, it just was, it, it was a very uh, interesting connection. And then the, I guess there was a car, car towed from his brother's property in South Carolina. Am I correct about that? That's right. It's a 2002 Avalanche, a Chevy Avalanche. Okay. And the similar vehicle was seized and impounded in New York. Okay. So there were, so I think people are confused by the Avalanche. So two of them were impounded by police. Um, so it sounds like the Chester County Sheriff's Department assisted the FBI and the Suffolk County out of New York's um, investigative team in that impound process. And then late last night, the Chester News actually broke that, um, uh, Chester News and Reporter broke that a search warrant was executed in relation to the property that's owned in Chester County. So in addition to impounding the 2002 Chevy Avalanche, they also executed a search warrant. And the search warrant details were extreme. I mean, you know, in South Carolina, when we get indictments, they're not very, you know, tells what the crimes are, a little bit of detail, but the indictments in this case were extremely lengthy, as was the search warrant. They put a lot of details into, into the search warrant, and I think it's going to be, I, it, to me, it was very telling to, and kind of creepy to see what they're looking for. Um, you know, among the things were um, they're looking for property that could be considered as trophies, um, personal, which are personal items that belong to the murder victims that a lot of serial killers have a tendency to hang on to. Um, phones, articles, jewelry, identification, notebooks, ledgers, Bibles, personal effects, or photographs. Um, and they're also looking for forensic and trace evidence on these properties. Um, so they're looking for DNA, uh, fingernails, toenails, animal hair, fur, human hair, human skin fibers. So. I, I, there was just a lot of like really interesting things noted on this. And all of the alleged victims of Hureman in, in New York were discovered wrapped in burlap. So burlap fabric. So that was also right. included on there, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and bounty yes. paper towels, specifically from the bounty modern and print collection. That is so specific. Very specific. But you know the part that really, really creeped me out? The cages. Oh. Yeah, it's... Right. They talk about looking for significantly sized animal cages and crates and the like. Wow, that is specific. Right. I, I mean, I... I am glad for, you know, the, the victims in New York that they're moving towards some sense of, you know, justice and closure. But, you know, a lot of people are wondering, is it, is it possible that there are potential victims in South Carolina? And Hewerman purchased these properties, was it September of 2022? Do I have that right? It was actually, it was July of 2021. Okay. All right. So he's had the properties since- When he purchased them. And then his brother yes, Craig, in his name, and his brother Craig has lived in that same area since. I mean, for quite some time. I can't remember the exact year. We, you and more I more than have, twenty years. Yes. Right. So you know, his Rex Hureman's ties to South Carolina really only go back directly to that property purchase in two thousand and twenty-one. But we're still trying to figure out his connection to the company that or the LLC incorporated that 
he purchased the property from Mirror Lakes Incorporated, which is based out of York, South right. Carolina, um, because they also gave him a mortgage on the property. So is he tied to that organization? We haven't quite figured that out yet, but you know, Mirror Lakes has a ton of property holdings in the area. And, right. and so, I mean, we don't know if he visited his brother in the years prior to him purchasing property. He must have, if, you know, he was, he was spurred right. to purchase property in the area. Um, but yeah, that's been the big question is, you know, are any unsolved homicides, missing persons tied to, to Hureman? Um, and I mean, at this point, you know, I do know police are doing their due diligence. The New York Post uh, reported yesterday that um, police in, let's see, I think it was York, South Carolina, uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, were looking into the disappearance of Aaliyah Bell, an 18-year-old um, who disappeared two days before Thanksgiving in 2014. Um, but what we do know a couple of things about what investigators believe to be Hearman's preferred victim, so victimology, um, and he preferred very, very petite women between the ages, I believe, 20 to 30. And, um, right. And blonde. Blonde. Right. So Aaliyah Bell um, is African-American, um, but, you know, who I don't, you know, there could be a variation. Um, the New York Post reported that, you know, at this point, there's no indication he is tied to tied to her disappearance. But police are, you know, like I said, doing their due diligence and just checking to see if anything could come up. Yeah. And I think sometimes we see that, especially with serial killers, there's a preferred type, but then sometimes there's a crime of convenience. Right. And that could defy the preferred type. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and now his brother, I think, is is almost, I mean, Rex Hureman doesn't have a criminal history, but his brother's... Right, which is very interesting. Right. His brother does have a lengthy criminal history, including charges of vehicular manslaughter. I believe that was out of New Jersey. Um, and, you know, he's, he's quite the character and... You know, you know, if you're looking at two brothers, wondering which of them possibly committed the crime to me, <laughs> Craig would have been the more likely suspect. But, you know, DNA is clearly pointing back to Rex. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, we have no um, we have no reason to believe that Craig's been implicated in any of these right. crimes. But it is very interesting. He's definitely very, very close to the investigation. Mm hmm. As you know, evidence of that being that his vehicle was seized, right? And there is no, um, I mean, there's no indication that he, you know, the the search warrant was served. And no indication he was not cooperative. So, you know, as with anybody, I think um, Hureman's family was probably just shocked and stunned by these allegations. And, and most of the murders in New York were actually committed while his family was out of town on vacation. And that's one of the things that mm. prosecutors pointed out in their um, warrant to arrest. Yeah. So, you know, in many ways at this point, the family is just as much a victim as anyone else. Right. They had no idea. They're not part of the crime. 
and they're, you know, they're finding this out in real time, just as the rest of the world is. So right. Not an easy position to be in. Yeah. Very, very difficult. It's, it's, I see pictures of them um, in various publications, media, and it's, you know, it's just, I can't even imagine that, those, you know, where they're at, where they're, you know, just trying to figure out what to do next and they're getting followed by cameras. So. Yeah, it's just a, it's a tough case. Um, I, it's a very sad case. I think as of now, he has been indicted on the murder of three victims. They believe they'll be able to um, tie him to the murder of a fourth. And then there are an additional number of victims that they're still investigating if they can, you know, tie him with enough evidence to their, their homicides. We certainly have plenty of missing women in mm -hmm. South Carolina. Yeah. And of course, we all want resolutions for anyone in that position, which just kind of reminds me that if you think you know something, please, by all means, contact the authorities because somebody somewhere knows something. I agree. Well, thanks for joining me, Callie. It's so fun to have you on board. It's great to have somebody who likes to research as much as I do, because for a long time I was <laughs> a <long laughs> Poor Dylan and Will will get all my text. <laughs> so, yeah. You challenge me every day. I love it. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, yeah, look for some fun stories coming from both me and Kelly and both of us together soon. I want to thank Jen Wood. I want to thank Callie Lyons. So excited to have Callie Lyons as a part of our team. Can't wait to see what she does, not only investigating this story, the Long Island serial killer and his potential connections to South Carolina, but all the other stories that we're focused on here at Fitz News. And speaking of one of those stories, obviously one of the biggest ones, probably the biggest one over the past few years, has been the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga. And this week we had some huge news on the civil side of that case, particularly the wrongful deaths lawsuit that really formed the, the basis of this entire story. It's the origin point, really, of the whole Murdoch saga. It was the incident that led really to the collapse of this empire, which for the better part of a century ran the South Carolina low country like a fiefdom. But it all unraveled in the early morning hours of February 24, 2019. And if you followed this story, you know exactly the story we're talking about. A boat carrying six young folks, driven by Paul Murdoch, the late Paul Murdoch, slammed into a pylon of the Archer's Creek Bridge in Beaufort County, South Carolina, just north of Paris Island. Now, this boat traveling at high rates of speed, uh, reckless, reckless speeds, and all of the individuals on that boat, according to responding law enforcement officers, were grossly intoxicated, according to the incident reports. Now, as this tragedy unfolded, again, five individuals injured with varying degrees of, of severity, but Mallory Beach, a 19-year-old from Hampton, South Carolina, she was the one that didn't survive. She was the one that didn't come out of the water that fateful February morning. And shortly after the crash, the following month, her family filed a wrongful death suit against a host of individuals believed to bear responsibility for Miss Beach's death. Now, this case, like so much of the Murdoch saga, has become very factional. It's become 
one side versus the other. It's become this team versus that team. And lost in the factionalism and in the acrimonious back and forth on social media, other forums, we're missing sort of the big picture here. And I wanted to stop for a minute as we walk through this and talk about that big picture. But first, let's go through the the numbers of this settlement. We're dealing with a $20 million roughly settlement. $15 million of that is going to the family of Mallory Beach. And then we've got varying ranges of compensation, I think 400000 to a little over a million for the other passengers on that boat. So let's talk about justice in this case, because a lot of folks have said, well, this is, this is justice for the Beach family. This is justice for those who were injured. And, and yes, this money, which is being paid out by the insurance companies that were representing the Parker's convenience store. Again, it was Parker's was one of the last defendants in this case. It was Parker's, the company that sold the alcohol that a lot of these teens consumed prior to the crash. Some of the alcohol, not all of it, but some of it. And Alec Murdoch, the owner of the boat. Those are the last two parties. And those are the two parties that have now, this case has been settled. So the case is over. But as we walk through the terms of the settlement, when we start talking about blame and apportioning blame, I wanted to pull this lens back because we are in a situation in South Carolina, and this is not popular to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it because it's important to talk about because there are thousands of jobs at stake, people's livelihoods at stake. But I'm talking about South Carolina's liability laws. And in this state, if you are determined to be even 1% responsible for a wreck like this, for a crash like this, you can be compelled to pay 100% of the settlement costs. And I would argue that's not fair. In fact, I don't have to argue that isn't fair. It simply isn't fair. And in this case, we had, or had, had, I want to emphasize past tense because the opportunity was squandered. We had an opportunity to talk about that. And we didn't. And there's one person I think that is most to blame for that, and that is Greg Parker. Greg Parker is the owner of the Parker's chain of convenience stores based down there in Savannah, but they got shops all over the Southeast. But Greg Parker is the guy that could have turned this into a debate that we need to have. But you know what he did instead? He went lower than, you've heard that expression, they go low. Well, folks, Greg Parker went lower than I think any human being I've ever seen covering cases like this went. Hired a bunch of political knife fighters, hired a bunch of private eyes, hired a bunch of unsavory type folks to leak information, to engage in this underhanded attempt to try to shift the blame away from him. And it's unfortunate, not only because of the damage it did to a lot of folks that were were hurt by that effort, but it also damaged the debate, this broader discussion that we need to have. Because let's be honest, Paul Murdoch, the driver of the boat, according to all those who were on it, I think it's safe to say, and I've seen the crime scene photos from his his murder in June 2021. I think it's safe to say he got what he deserved and probably then some for his culpability in this tragedy. And I would argue more than anyone else, any entity, any individual, I would argue Paul Murdoch is to blame for this crash more than anyone else. But there are others. Alec Murdoch, we've seen pictures of him on the boats getting drunk with these kids. Clearly knew his son was 
consuming alcohol underage. Clearly gave him access to the boat in spite of that. So Alec Murdoch certainly had some, some liability there. There were other business entities which provided alcohol, which settled early on in this process. They admitted their liability and paid for it. But Parker was the last holdout. Parker was the guy that made this personal. And as a result, we now have a situation where this false narrative is out there about these teens that, according to Mark Tinsley, have been exonerated, who bear no responsibility. Well, I don't think that's true either. But because of the way that this thing unfolded, all of a sudden it's just facts don't matter. Common sense doesn't matter. Again, it's all about factionalism. But as we look at this, we need to look long and hard about how these liability laws are structured. We don't have Greg Parker to kick around anymore. This case is over. Now, there is still an outrage case related to the way that Parker handled it, and he should be held accountable for that. But you know what? There was some underhanded stuff going on on both sides. And we're going to get into that in future episodes of this show. But certainly, that case is worth exploring to see what everyone was doing to try to win this fight. But that, that's about this case. What we need to have a discussion about is how are we going to fix South Carolina's law to justly and properly apportion responsibility. And again, I'm not saying that Greg Parker didn't owe a big check here. I think he did, or his insurance company, whoever. A big check was owed to the Beach family here for their loss and also to the individuals who were injured in this crash. But we got to get past the point of this 100% liability for 1% fault and then the demonization of people in these processes. That serves nobody in the debate because we are in a situation right now in South Carolina where our laws are crippling small businesses. These aren't the crony capitalists getting the multi-million dollar handouts. These are mom and pop companies. And do they have an obligation not to serve drunk people, to overserve drunk people, to serve underage people? Absolutely they do. But we've got to find a just balance. And I would argue in this case, and in a lot of other cases like this, this 1% liability, 100% compensation for that liability is inequitable. And until we fix that, we're going to continue to see prohibitive insurance rates that are going to put a ton of people out of business. Now, again, that's not a popular view. And I'm sure I'll get trolled on social media for, for espousing it here. And you know what? That's okay. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you are a factional person on this case, then just go ahead and click somewhere else. Click somewhere else. Because if you come here, we're going to tell you truth. Good, bad, ugly, unpopular. You're going to hear it here because that's what we're here for. But again, as the Murdoch case continues to unfold, we've got the outrage case on the civil side. We've got a number of criminal cases coming up in the coming months. I want you to keep it tuned to Fitz News as we have been the tip of the spear on this story from the beginning. And we will continue to be the tip of the spear on it moving forward, not only breaking news, but providing you with context on those developments, popular or not. So across the state of South Carolina and across the country, we have seen a staggering spike in fentanyl deaths, overdoses, surging traffic. It is everywhere in this country. Everything is laced with it at this point. And the consequences of that epidemic are starting to seep their way even 
deeper into our communities. I want to point out a couple numbers. According to the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a 279% spike in fentanyl OD deaths. And this is over the last five years, from 5.7 per 100,000 citizens back in 2016 to nearly 22 in 2021. Again, five years, tripled. In South Carolina, you go to State Department of Health and Environmental Control, they've been releasing numbers. The opioid-related deaths and fentanyl-related deaths in particular are also skyrocketing. I'm looking here at the numbers. We reported on these recently. (sighs) Only 2.1 deaths per 100,000 back in 2016. That's up to 9.6. 9.6. So again, more than quadrupled here in South Carolina. These are hockey stick numbers, people. That means they are escalating exponentially. Now, last month... Dylan Nolan, our special projects director, and I went down to the border, the U.S.-Mexican border in the Yuma sector in Arizona. And we saw with our own eyes where 51% of the fentanyl that floods its way into this country crosses in that sector. But we were told and we learned on that trip that it doesn't take long for those drugs to make their way into our communities. Well, this past week we sat down with someone who has lived the tragic influence of fentanyl, who has been through something that I wouldn't wish on anyone. But she sat down with us and told us her story, and I'm referring to Janet Smoke. Janet works at Lexington Medical Center. She's a patient accounts manager there. But two years ago, almost to the day, she lost her son, 24-year-old Justin Smoke, to an accidental fentanyl overdose. Janet sat down with me to talk about what she's experienced, the pain that she felt, the loss that she still feels, and what she's doing to advocate on behalf of her son and the other victims of this worsening epidemic. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. As Justin went into middle school, um, things started changing a little bit. I wish I could say that I was a parent that picked up on everything, but I didn't. The main thing I remember was that he stopped smiling in pictures. And Mm -hmm. that's what I picked up on was he's not smiling in pictures. Um, He was also getting in trouble at school. um, And one day I found marijuana in his room. And, of course, I went straight to counseling. If I could do things over, I probably wouldn't jump straight to counseling. Um, But that was middle school. Um, He was diagnosed with ADHD, and he was prescribed Adderall, but he didn't take it for very long. He didn't like the way it made him feel. And later, I came to learn that um, he realized that when he smoked pot, he relaxed. That took care of the the distractions that he was having. I'm sure that's not the only reason that he took it, but but that is one of the reasons. Self-medication is certainly one of the reasons. Absolutely. Once he got into high school, that's really when we started noticing additional problems. Um, He got into some legal trouble, um, and that was our first experience with court and then jail, um, unfortunately. Um, I would like to just gloss over that, but that was part of Justin's life, you know. Um, It made an impact on the whole family, Um, and it was bad decisions that he made. He never got in trouble with the law for drugs. Usually it was stealing so he could buy drugs. Um, Once um, he graduated from high school, 
um, he ended up a few years later moving to Albuquerque to live with my sister. And he, um, he really was doing better. He was starting to show that he was productive. He was, res he was becoming responsible. He worked at a restaurant as a dishwasher and he loved his job. He would go in before shift and help clean the office. He said, I can put my headphones in, my earbuds in and, and I'm good to go. And then with dishwashing, he didn't have to interact with anybody. He, that was the job for him. He loved it. Um, and we saw him starting to thrive. Um, but then he moved back to South Carolina um, a few years, maybe a year, year and a half after that, um, and more legal issues. He mm -hmm. fell back into the same patterns with drug use, jail again. Um, this time he stayed in jail for a little while um, because we didn't feel we could bring him home yet. Mm -hmm. um, after after jail, um, Actually, I have my timeline a little wrong because it That's was after okay. that stint in jail that he actually went to Albuquerque to live with my sister. Uh, sorry about that. No, but you guys are dealing with a lot, obviously. Now, let me yes. ask you this, though. When you were noticing these changes in him and these the, the drug issues, you always – you told me earlier we were talking about it, You never got the sense he was giving up, though. You never got the sense that, yeah. that you felt like this was something he was constantly fighting Yes, actually. Um, the very first time he went, we took him to Palmetto Health Adolescent Recovery Center. Mm -hmm. That might not be all the right words in the right order. Um, but he went there for the outpatient program. When they did his initial interview, they came back and told us that Justin didn't have a problem right then. But if his behavior didn't change, he would become an addict. And unfortunately, that is what happened over time because Justin, it felt like we were on a constant roller coaster. Justin would be clean. He would get, then something would happen. He would lose his job or he would get in trouble. Um, and it, later we would find out that, well, he was doing drugs. Um, so that's when he would relapse. Then he would have a period where he would do okay. He would get clean again. He would get a job. And then the same thing would happen this over went on and over. For for um, years or for probably not probably nine years total oh, wow. at least um it was a long period of time um all right that is a wrap for this week's edition of the week in review before we go i want to do a plug again for fitz files our new podcast it's on apple it's on spotify google Podcasts. wherever you go to download your podcast please check it out fitz files subscribe to it, leave a review if you like it, obviously. But this is a true crime and corruption podcast we're incredibly proud of. And our first episode, which dropped just this past week, focused on the Rose Petal murder up in Greenville, South Carolina. This is an incredibly graphic, layered, complicated crime. And we set the stage and set the table for that in our first episode of Fitz Files. We're going to have much more on the Rose Petal murder coming up in the episodes to come and other true crime and corruption sagas in the Palmetto State and beyond. So if you haven't already, download Fitz Files, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple. Subscribe to us, leave a review. Very excited about that offering and where we're going to take it. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for making last week's edition the most watched episode ever of the Week in Review. And we will catch you next time on your Week in Review.